0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: G'day, I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. 20 years ago, Kathleen Folbig was labelled Australia's worst female serial killer after being found guilty of killing her four young children. This week, many of us celebrated her early release from prison. Today is a tremendous day. We are just so delighted for Kathleen, um, a poor,
2: innocent woman who spent 20 years of her life being incarcerated for doing something that she never did.
0: Today is a victory for science and especially truth. And for the last 20 years I have been in prison, I have forever and will always think of my children Pray for my children and I miss them and love them terribly.
1: Kathleen Folbig always maintained her innocence and bit by bit over the years scientific evidence began to mount that her children, all four of them, could have died of natural causes. Most compelling was the discovery that two of her children shared a genetic mutation that can cause a fatal irregular heartbeat. And this week Kathleen Folbig was granted a full pardon and immediate release from prison. This has been a terrible
0: ordeal uh, for everyone concerned and I hope that uh, our actions today um, can put some closure on this 20-year-old matter.
1: But how did our justice system fail so badly and for so long?
0: These convictions should never have been entered and they should never have been upheld. And while I'm glad that Kathleen now understands how her children died, the legal system failed her at every turn.
1: Dr Emma Cunliffe is Professor of Law at the University of British Columbia and author of the book Murder, Medicine and Motherhood that put a spotlight on the case more than a decade ago.
0: The implications for the New South Wales legal system are that for 20 years, an innocent woman has been held in prison and branded a serial killer in the face of evidence of her innocence. And while that evidence mounted over the course of the 20 years, the truth is that this was always a wrongful conviction.
1: You have spoken to Kathleen this week uh, without breaching any confidence, of course, is there anything you can tell us about those conversations? And and I guess about, about seeing Kathleen outside of prison and, and how she's doing.
0: She's very relieved that her ordeal is over and uh, giddy with freedom, I think it's fair to say. Her friend Tracy spoke this week to the fact that She's finding certain things bewildering. Um, For example, there was no such thing as smartphones uh, when when Kathleen went into into prison in 2003. And she's just astonished by the technology that runs our lives these days. Um, It'll take her some time, I think, to adjust to life on the outside of prison.
1: Let's go back. Do you remember, was there a moment when you became convinced that Kathleen Folbig had been wrongly convicted?
0: Becoming convinced of Kathleen's innocence was a process. When I first sat down to read her diaries in their completeness, I realised that the passages which had been most heavily quoted had been taken out of context by the lawyers and by the media. The diaries recorded a woman who was struggling mightily with her grief and trauma at the loss of successive infants and who were seeking reasons that she could control. Once I read the research on maternal bereavement and realised how common it is for mothers who experience unexpected infant death to blame themselves um, and even to become quite superstitious in the ways in which they, they respond to the experience of infant death, I realised that Kathleen Folbig's behaviour was absolutely typical of a pattern of bereaved mothers. And furthermore, when I looked to the medical research about repeated infant deaths and realised that the jury in her trial had been misled about the state of the medical research, it was at that point that I started to believe that she'd been wrongly convicted.
1: Yeah, because looking at some of the diary entries and and how they were used at the time, you know, you you can see how certainly at that time, they may have been taken out of context. For example, this one, it was me, not them, she wrote. With Sarah, all I wanted was for her to shut up. And then one day she did. Another one, she's a fairly good natured baby. Thank goodness. It saved her from the fate of the other children. How is that explained in in the terms that you're talking
0: about now? Yeah, David, I read those entries the same way you did and the same way many people did when I first first saw them um, reported in newspapers. When you read those statements in the context of the broader diary entries in which they appear, and particularly when you set them alongside the research on maternal reactions to unexplained infant death, what becomes apparent is that for Kathleen, as her children died, Um, she became increasingly firm in the belief that if she could control everything about their lives and everything about her mothering, then the next child would survive. I wonder if
1: perhaps the biggest factor in all this was that not one or two, but four of her children died tragically in circumstances unexplained at the time and that that perhaps spurred police prosecutors and others in the legal system to conclude because they're all human it can't have been coincidence and, and and kind of colored the whole process
0: yes coincidence is a dangerous word in the criminal law and um i think that at the trial the wrong question was being asked and answered as you say, that the question that the prosecutor was particularly focused on was it can't happen four times or or if it happens four times it can't be a coincidence. Really the question that they should have been focusing on is given the pattern of four deaths in this family, can that be explained um, only by murder? or are there alternative explanations that are consistent with natural causes of death and there was there was a whole slew of evidence that was important not the least of which was the fact that there was no physical evidence of harm to any child and no evidence whatsoever that he had ever hurt a child during its life and the jury heard evidence that medical research did not document any family in which there was a natural unexplained infant, uh, set of infant deaths of three or four. Um, That was untrue in 2003. And it opened the door wide to a wrongful conviction because if, as the jury hears, such a pattern of natural infant deaths has never been documented, then the idea that they must be murder seems so much stronger um, than if, as was in fact the case, um, there is a documented history of of multiple infant deaths in other families in Western societies at about the same time. And in some cases, those deaths have been closely examined and ruled to be natural.
1: Isn't it up to the defence team to, to make that case? And, and And is that where part of the failure lay?
0: I think there were failures on the part of both the Crown and the defence. In the Australian legal system, the prosecutor has a responsibility to put the evidence before the jury fairly um, and not only to press one side of the evidence. And so I think it was incumbent on both the prosecution and the defence to consider the other side of the story, if you will, the question of how best to put a fair and accurate account of the medical literature before the jury, not a one-sided account.
1: So, of course, it was the scientific evidence, the new scientific evidence about genetic mutations that really culminated in in this pardon. Do we need a new process to, to ensure that that sort of evidence is heard in criminal cases where all appeal avenues have been exhausted?
0: Yes, David, we do. And I would put it further and say we need an independent post-conviction review process for any case in which an accused person uh, feels able to point to new evidence that suggests their innocence. The fact that it took 20 years to exonerate Kathleen Folbig is an indictment on the New South Wales legal system and the direct comparator that I would point to is that there was a similar set of cases in England at about the same time. Um, In about 2002, 2003, a group of mothers were convicted on the basis of similarly wrongful medical science as Kathleen Folbig, those cases resulted in exonerations within a year or two of the convictions happening. And the big difference is that England has a criminal cases review commission, which is an independent, properly funded body that is tasked with reviewing the soundness of convictions.
1: Now that Kathleen Folbig has been pardoned, it doesn't mean that she's been found innocent. The case will need to be referred to the Court of Criminal Appeal for the conviction to be quashed. What would that mean for Kathleen Folbig?
0: So that's a very important step for Kathleen Folbig. The pardon is a complicated thing. It um, Technically, its legal meaning is that she's still regarded at law as being guilty of the offences. But that a mercy has been extended to her. Commissioner Battis hasn't yet completed his report, um, but Kathleen Folbig's legal team has asked um, that he recommend that the case be referred back to the New South Wales Court of Appeal so that the convictions can be quashed. The result of having them quashed will be that she's regarded as being innocent in the eyes of the law. Um, And for obvious reasons, that's very important to Kathleen.
1: Dr Emma Cunliffe there, a law professor at the University of British Columbia. The hammer blows from the Reserve Bank just keep on coming. Another interest rate rise this week and probably more to come. Good evening. More banks are passing
3: on interest rate hikes tonight
1: as a growing number of people are left wondering how to pay their mortgage. So after the pause two months ago to see then two consecutive increases is certainly what, not, not what a lot of businesses, nor what a lot of households will be seeking at this stage. Bringing down inflation is proving more difficult than many imagined. The question is why? This week, the RBA Governor claimed your pay rise, if you've had one, could be making his job more difficult. We will get ourselves, though, into trouble if we accept the premise that all workers need to be compensated for inflation. We've got to make sure that uh, the higher inflation doesn't translate into higher wage outcomes for everybody. That comment put him at odds with the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, who's part of a government that's repeatedly promised to get wages moving again. I think we need to be really careful here uh, and not blame our workers who've got a legitimate aspiration to earn more uh, when they work more. The good news, somewhat perversely, is that the economy slowed down significantly in the first three months of this year, according to the latest GDP figures.
2: So we needed to pull some hot air out of the economy, and these figures indicate that that is happening. Now, unfortunately, the inflation rate is still very high, and it's coming down slower than we, we might have thought, but at least this is some sign uh, that, that these interest rate rises are operating
1: Stephen Hamilton is an associate professor of economics at George Washington University.
2: The one issue I think people should keep in their minds is that it it may also indicate that the soft landing that we'd hope to achieve is a little less likely than we thought before.
1: Yeah, indeed. The Reserve Bank governor has long talked about this narrow path that he needs to walk to bring down inflation without crashing the economy. But it seems that path has got narrower. Why is that?
2: My view is that the Reserve Bank waited far too long uh, to start tightening interest rates. So uh, the RBA was the last advanced economy in the world to respond. Uh, And what that meant was inflationary pressures had started to build. They, They made a good start over the first six months. They caught up to other countries. But then towards the end of 2022, they started to slow the interest rate increases because they thought they had done enough. And then as everyone probably remembers, a few months ago, they paused. So they stopped raising interest rates. And what we found since then is that that was premature, right? The, the, the inflation that they thought they had got under control, in fact, had not got under control. And, and one big problem is that that kind of early inflation, which was driven by high you know, energy prices by supply chain disruptions has started to morph into much broader inflation in the economy that's driven by things like wages. So that's kind of the the concern, right? The, the RBA didn't quite get on top of inflation when they ought to have and is now having to make up for lost time.
1: Yeah, the big shift this week really was on the question of wage increases and, and their impact on inflation. And we are seeing a bit of a split open up with the RBA talking up the impact of wages on inflation and the government now talking it down, saying we shouldn't blame those doing it tough for inflation and for higher interest rates. Who's right here?
2: There is no doubt in my mind and no doubt in the mind, I think, of any uh, leading economist that the inflationary impulse we're experiencing had nothing to do with wages. Nothing. So that that's absolutely right to say that the inflation we're experiencing was not caused by wages. It was caused by the Ukraine war. It was caused by supply chain disruptions, too much demand coming out of the pandemic, maybe a little bit too much stimulus. It had nothing to do with wages. But the issue is, is once that inflation train starts rolling, the wage increases that result are like adding weight to that train. They keep the train rolling at a time where the Reserve Bank is trying to slow it. So you can keep these two thoughts in your mind at one time. Wages did not cause this problem, but wages are helping this problem to continue. And that is the concern of the Reserve Bank Governor, and in a sense, both the Treasurer and the Governor are right.
1: When you look at the full suite of policies that the government has in place to achieve its promise of getting wages moving again, Can we pin any responsibility for that train rolling on on the government?
2: Yeah, so I would look at two things. One, I would look at the fiscal policy that the government has enacted. And I think sort of in the recent budget, uh, the government's decisions – added about sixteen billion dollars of economic activity to the economy in the coming year. And that pushes interest rates up by roughly point four percent. Right? That's about one and a half interest rate increases. So it's not not insignificant. So that's one side of the issue. The other side of the issue is wages, right? So the government has since before the election, you, you know, listeners can probably remember Anthony Albanese coming out during the election campaign and saying he didn't want anyone to be going backwards, right, for their wage to be going up by less than inflation. And since the election, there was a Fair Work Commission uh, decision on minimum wages that the government very robustly uh, recommended keep up with inflation and the Fair Work Commission agreed. In the latest decision, which came out recently, again, the Fair Work Commission decided that roughly two million award wage recipients' wages could not fall below inflation so we 've had very robust wage increases for around two million workers now, that in and of itself maybe makes a small difference to the to the weight in the train, but it it 's not the kind of thing that you know is is a huge concern. the bigger problem is that those wage increases spill over into higher wages for other workers. And this is the thing that the Reserve Bank Governor this week has, has mentioned. Now, the other thing to consider is that's not the only policy decision the government's taken. So they're, they're really trying to push wages up along a whole range of dimensions, including – You know, other other measures like 15% increase in wages for aged care workers, their their industrial relations reforms in things like multi employer bargaining and same job, same wage kind of uh, uh, measures. So, you know, we, we need to think broadly about the pressure the government is putting on wages. And whether we like it or not, to the extent that the government is putting more pressure on wages, that puts more pressure on the Reserve Bank.
1: And then in the mix, there was this OECD report suggesting company profits actually contributed more to inflation than wages last year. Now, both you and Philip Lowe agree that this is misleading, to say the least.
2: Yeah, so uh, look, I think people can see when they go around, you know, high prices and they assume in their minds that that means high profits for the companies setting those high prices. But if you look at the data outside of mining, it's simply not true. So the mining industry obviously is receiving very high prices from foreign buyers of those mining commodities and they're making really big profits. So there's no doubt about that. And of course, that would happen during a commodities boom. But outside of that sector, we're just not seeing the kind of very big increases in profits uh, that you might you might be thinking of. now, Because we get a lot of thing. news
1: reports, record profits here, record profits there. What Overall, that's not the case.
2: Yeah. So if you look at uh, uh, profits in many of these industries, they were profitable before the pandemic, right? And they don't like to raise prices, partly because they're worried about what that will do to their their customers, right? But eventually, they have to adjust. And very frequently, they'll adjust much more than they would have, right? Because they don't adjust their prices very often. So, if you kind of look at the price changes that these companies have achieved on average over time, they just don't bear out this story, that uh, there's been this huge drive, uh, uh, driver of inflation uh, in, in profits.
1: For a lot of people in Australia, Philip Lowe now is akin to public enemy number one. Do you think, though, he has any other choice but to do what he's doing?
2: At the end of the day, his job right now is to get inflation under control. If we don't get inflation under control, every single one of us is poorer, right? And and frankly, the biggest burden of that falls on the least well off of us. So I think we should give the guy a break. He has a job to do. Uh, It's hard for people out there to bear that cost, I understand. But if we had a cheaper alternative, I can bet you we would be using it. Unfortunately, we don't.
1: Stephen Hamilton there, an Associate Professor of Economics at George Washington University. A new catastrophe engulfed southern Ukraine this week with the collapse of a Soviet-era dam in the Russian-occupied region of Kherson. Dozens of towns and villages on both sides of the Dnipro River are flooded, forcing tens of thousands of people to flee their homes. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky points the finger at Moscow.
2: Russia has detonated a bomb of mass environmental destruction.
1: Now, a lot of analysts and some Western officials have also blamed Russia for the disaster, but Vladimir Putin insists it was Ukraine that destroyed the dam in an act of sabotage.
3: Well, right now there is not much evidence in terms of who might have been behind the attack and there is no consensus, so the investigations are still ongoing.
1: Marina Myron is a postdoctoral researcher with the War Studies Department at King's College, London.
3: The only thing that can be done is an assessment of who might have benefited more from the attack. And so for the, for the Russian side, it would be, of course, um, stopping the Ukrainian counteroffensive and preventing Ukrainian troops from crossing Dnipro and um, essentially leaving them in a swamp. So that that would be the benefit. However, back in October 2022, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, Kirill Budanov, talked about the potential explosion of the Novokhovka dam because uh, this concern has existed for a while now, and he stated that it would be very silly for the Russians to do it because essentially that would not prevent uh, Ukrainians from launching their military operations, maybe slightly slows them down. But he said that basically cutting off uh, the water supply to Crimea and the flooding might push the Russian forces back. and, And so it would be more detrimental for the Russians besides um the it doesn't really shorten the line of contact and there were no indications that the Ukrainians were going to cross the the, the river because it would be too risky for them so it has never really been an option for launching the counteroffensive specifically in that place um, that being said uh, of course um We don't know who might be behind this, but there would have been benefits for both sides to do it. The
1: Ukrainians we've spoken to this week have pointed out, you know, why would they blow up their own critical infrastructure and also pointed out that it's in the control of, of Russia and that it would be very hard to blow it up with missiles alone, that it would have to be sort of detonated from the inside. Is is that uh, right in in your view, from your perspective?
3: Well, from my perspective, there is such thing as a military necessity. And by blowing up this dam, it could disorient the Russian forces and would, uh, first of all, the defences, the Russian defences and the minefields on the Eastern bank would also be flooded. So for Russians, uh, you know, for, for the Ukrainian side, it would obviously be beneficial to distract the Russian forces, to make them redeploy more forces, to deal with a humanitarian catastrophe. And the, the other thing, yes, the dam was halfway mined, according to Ukrainian military intelligence. So that could have helped because first it was a kind of that there are two ways it was a partial destruction and because of the flow of water, um, allegedly it it collapsed completely. So um, if we remember early March 2022 and the Irpin Dam next to Kiev, that dam was destroyed as well, and that dam, as um, investigations have shown, has been destroyed by Ukrainian forces. Now the implications of the destruction uh, in terms of uh, humanitarian catastrophe were not as significant uh, compared to the Novokovka Dam. However, what it did, it was preventing the Russian forces from taking Kiev. So in a sense, you have immediate um, ramifications for a long-term good because you have initial suffering such as, you know, collateral damage is another term, you know, when when it comes to military operations and deciding whether to strike certain targets because there is a potential that civilians might die. But if the overall objective ensures to bring more good in the long term, then sometimes it is decided to go ahead with such an operation. So that would be one example where the Ukrainian forces had destroyed the dam in order to prevent Russian advances. And because this counteroffensive is very important for Ukraine, it is, I am not suggesting that the Ukrainians did it, but it would, in the mil- from a military perspective, make sense for mm. the Ukrainians to do it, to um, avoid greater evil and to possibly push the Russian forces back and to increase the possibility of the success of the counteroffensive.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting that you, you don't think it's as clear-cut as many Western officials have made it out to be. So, so why is this much-touted, long-expected counteroffensive taking so long to get underway?
3: Well, there are many reasons for that. Uh, First of all, the weather, it has been very muddy. And so for for the Ukrainians to use their Leopard 2 tanks, um, it is not possible to to drive them in the mud because they would get stuck. They are about 65 tons, so they're quite heavy um, as compared to the Soviet prototypes. So they, they had to wait for the weather to stabilize on, on the one hand. On the other hand, Ukraine has also been waiting for more deliveries um, from the West um, in order to reinforce their chances of success. Um, they have been waiting for the brigades to be trained by NATO forces specifically for this counteroffensive. And, of course, the problem is that all analysts kept on talking where Ukraine might strike. And so this counteroffensive has been PR'd. Everybody is waiting for it. And from a military perspective, it's really bad if you create that kind of pressure because they need to wait out for the best moment to do it. And ideally, it should be a surprise.
1: And... How important will this counter-offensive be to the overall war effort and, and Ukraine's attempts to to defeat the, the Russian invaders?
3: Well, for Ukraine, this seems to be a make-it-or-break-it point because of the um, Western support, which is dwindling in a way because um, the NATO alliance has already admitted uh, er earlier in 2022 that the reserves uh, need to be replenished, NATO's reserves. So countries are slowly running out of things to give to Ukraine. So it's very important. It's um, the kind of, it should be the turning moment in the war where Ukrainian forces trained by NATO forces can demonstrate their capabilities and can demonstrate their skill in terms of using Western equipment. And it will be very difficult for the Ukrainians because they have to master a very complex combined arms operation against the Russians who have prepared for or who have been preparing for this counteroffensive for the past eight months or so.
1: That's Dr Marina Myron from the King's College London and that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe, just search for This Week Podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Rachel Hayter, Marcus Hobbs and me, David Lipson. Catch you next time.